Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Old Chokey, which isn't very Chokey today because it's a beautiful goddamn day. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldhorn, a.k.a. Yumi, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? Good evening, Kaiser. I'm doing very, very well. Good to hear, good to hear. So we're also joined today by Jeremiah Jenny, who is perhaps the world's greatest and most flippant interpreter of Qing history through the lens of contemporary pop culture. And incidentally, he's also director of the IES program at Beiwai here in Beijing, and of course, author of the excellent Jottings from the Granite Studio blog. Welcome back, Jeremiah. Thanks, Kaiser. Uh, so today, by popular demand, a re-recording of part two of the listener call-in show, which died a tragic digital death last week. So we had a lot of fun, uh, and we're going to try and recreate that spirit here today. Since you folks all replied that you wanted more in the call-in format, we were delighted to oblige not once, but now twice. So what better guest than Jeremiah, who has entertained cynical listeners many a time with his penis jokes and body references to alleged mistresses of certain former but still influential Chinese presidents who wear their pants way too high. So, <laughs> thanks, Jeremiah. Uh, let's jump and right in. And if you're a new listener, well... Just get educated just, just quick. Get flow well, since I'm here, I just want to ask, is it true the rumors that, in fact, last week Seneca was hacked by the Chinese government? <laughs> well, I don't know what happened, but Seneca did disappear into the cloud somehow. It just disappeared. So we're doing it again. We're going to anyway. see scratchy digital copies of it show up somewhere. Anyway, um, let's jump right in. Um, so first up, Brenton Leanhart. Hi, my name's Brenton, and I'm just curious if you could take some time to talk a little bit about uh, Fa Piao. Um, the way I'm seeing it is it's some kind of weird harmony of tax evasion and uh, government social engineering mixed with uh, you know, local black markets. And I'm just curious if, uh, if there's anything more to it or uh, what else uh, I should know. Thanks a lot. Jeremy, you are something of an authority on Fapiao, as I understand it. I'm not an authority on Fapiao, but I think I'm the world's biggest fan of Fapiao. I mean, I think Fapiao are one of those things about the Chinese... Uh, system that is a truly great feature of China. I think it's something that every developing country can learn from. I think the Fa Piao system is a thing of genius, and oh. I would say a thing of beauty. Okay, I guess we, have, let we, me should, ex- we should say what Fa Piao are first. All right, right let, I mean, so Fa Piao, what it means basically is a tax invoice. So it's a, an invoice that a company gives to a person or company who pays them for a good or a service. And on this invoice, you basically have the the amount that is paid and you have the official chop of the company. And the invoice itself is a, a special invoice printed by uh, on a special paper that you buy from the tax authorities, from the government. Right. So um, what is amazing about this system is that it allows a, a country that is full of uh, – informal economic entities to trade, uh, to sell goods and services. And even though they may be completely outside the formal economy, they still end up paying taxes. And the reason for it is this, that uh, when you print a FAPIAO, because it's on paper and using special numbers that now are all checked up on the internet, uh, you basically are... uh, paying sales tax on the amount of that FIPR. So that varies from, depending on the industry, like 4 to about 6% for, for most things that a consumer would encounter. Now, anybody who wishes to be a part of the formal economy has to use FIPR. So there's only one way to get money out of a company aside from salaries, basically, which is to show a FIPR of something you've bought so that you can um, demonstrate that it's a legitimate business expense. Right. Blah, 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 blah. This system means <clears throat> that if you are a startup business, for example, and you don't have anything legal or anything registered and you get your first client – and your client is uh, a company that pays taxes, if they are going to pay you, they need to justify the expense. They need to show the tax amount of FIPR. So even if you don't have a a legally registered company, you will turn to somebody who can sell you a FIPR. And that means that you'll actually pay pay tax on uh, the fees that you're accepting, even though you don't have a legally registered company. Now, of course, there can be fakes. And of course, it means there's a lot of money changing hands. So anytime in China, money changes hands, there's lots of dodginess going on. But the basic system operates very, very well. And it provides a really great way for China to collect tax on all kinds of informal economic transactions. So the dodgy part of it is actually the uninteresting part of this particular story. 
So what happens if if I'm a company and I uh, want to sell somebody something sort of on the sly and not have to pay tax on it? What what incentivizes a consumer to actually want that fa piao from me? Well, for most consumers, for if you if you're not running a business where you deduct you know expenses against the tax bill you pay at the end of the year, then there's no incentive except that I think learning from Taiwan, the in China, uh, the kinds of fa piao you get as a consumer at restaurants and shopping mark uh, su- um, shopping malls will you, usually taxes, have yeah. they'll have a little um, uh, kind of lucky draw lottery. Scratch and uh, you scratch a thing and uh, scratch and win. Huh? Scratch and win. So people get the fapiao because they might win, you know, a little lottery prize. Do you do you actually scratch them, Jeremiah? I don't, but uh, my wife is utterly fascinated by the scratch ticket game on these fapiao to the extent that I worry if we ever move back to New Hampshire that she's going to be one of those women out in front of Cumberland Farms in the, in the passenger seat of our car going through like $500 worth of scratch tickets. It's, <laughs> it's not a pretty sight, and I, I think there, an intervention needs to be happening pretty soon. <laughs> Although I will agree with Jeremy, that does actually encourage people. I mean, it really does work. I've seen people like, I don't care about the Fabio. I just want to see if I've won my five quai. Right, and it is—it's only like five quai or twenty quai or whatever. I just she's said. never won. Like in, in seven <laughs> years, she's never won. Like this is going to be the year. Okay. No, yeah, I don't—I don't know of many people who've won. Okay, but, well, yeah, I mean, just to emphasize, the fapiao is a thing of beauty. It's one of the greatest features of the Chinese system, I would say. It is rather ingenious. Yeah, I mean, so you, when you see foreigners scrambling at the end of every month, it's because you, you can actually uh, – actually, it's not just foreigners, but a lot of people in China, if you're in a high uh, income bracket, you can take up to, I think, 40% of your salary uh, in what's called fully fei. So it's, it's sort of – you can expense things like your rent and transportation, food and dining, uh, even like dry cleaning and things like that. But you need to produce – uh, you don't pay income fapia. tax, but you right. have to produce you a fapiao to, to demonstrate you've really spent the money. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it is genius. Okay, the next question comes from Tom Willis in Singapore. Hi, Kaiser, Jeremy, Gaddy. Love your show. This is Tom Wills in Singapore, and my question is, has China made any real progress on protection of intellectual property in the past year or two? And will we ever get to a place where a patent or a copyright in China carries the same weight that it does in the West, or is disrespect for IP endemic to the culture of mainland China and all we can expect five years from now is more Shanghai Apple stores and Starbucks? Thank you. Okay, so IP and intellectual property protection in China. Uh, Jeremiah, let's, let's take an historical view on this. Is China really the fir- world's first great pirate nation? Is this the first to, to, to flout IP laws? Yeah, I mean, now this is something that's been going on, I mean, since the beginning of, I mean, IP. And, you know, China can make a legitimate claim like, hey, where's the IP on paper, ladies and gentlemen? But that said, I mean, you know, you can look back at editorials that were written in the London papers in the 19th century where they were, you know, writers were coming unglued at the extent to which, you know, fake copied shoddy products were coming out of, you know, the United States. And, you know, this was this was kind of endemic at the time. And it, you know, it may be a cliche to say that China's just going through a phase right now, because certainly, if it is a phase, it, it's it's one that's been going on for a while. And you know, the number of Shanghai Apple stores and other things, you know, says that it's not going away anytime soon. That said, I think one of the most important things to worry about is just you know what this is going to do for local entrepreneurs, local um, you know, local innovation. Yeah. So my take on this is that. Uh, as soon as Chinese companies start victimizing one another, and it's already really happening, uh, they're they're going to start taking these things much more seriously. They're becoming more litigious. I mean, you can cite a number of examples. I mean, one that I have a little bit of experience with is the internet video world, where just a couple of years ago, it was still quite commonplace to see not just U.S. but you know, more importantly, you know. Chinese shows just being sort of ripped off. One company would pay licensing fee- fees to be able to run a a you know, a, a television serial, and uh, another company would just sort of lift it and sort of you know digitally smear its its watermark on it and then and then run it. And they started suing one another. And before you knew it, I mean, it, it became very very difficult to actually find a lot of these. Uh, television shows being broadcast on the Yokus and the Tudos and the Sohu, the TV.Sohu.com sites. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, nowadays, I think uh, the U.S. government, anyway, the way they see it is, you know, the IP environment, at least in uh, in in 
digital video has improved substantially. Now, um, there are a lot of other industries where we haven't seen similar progress, but I think in general um, there's progress being made. Yeah, there's progress being made. But I mean, if you put the question, in five years' time, will there be Shanghai Apple stores and Shanghai Starbucks? More yes, of them, yeah. More of course, of loads of them. You know, th- that kind of, it's not going to change that quickly. Okay. Um, you know, this, one, this one's been talked about a lot, and it's an episode's worth of, uh, of a topic. So let's just move on here. Um, this one comes from Elliot in Beijing. Hi, guys. This is Elliot in Beijing. Thanks for continuing to produce awesome podcasts. This American Life featured a story by Eric Steinman recently investigating a rumor that pig bung, that's the industry-preferred nomenclature for pig rectum, is being sold as imitation calamari. As many strange food stories do, the investigation led to China, and Eric interviewed a researcher of Chinese food who had purportedly lived in China for over four decades. The individual told Eric that his question about whether pig bung might be sold in China as imitation calamari was insulting, stupid, and racist, and that he should find some better way to waste his time. The researcher refused to let his name be used in the story, but there aren't many individuals with such credentials, so I'm wondering if we can find out who this is and maybe get a further statement from them about just what is so wrong with this line of inquiry. Jeremy, I, I believe you actually listened to the particular This American Life. I, I know I did. Um, it was a, an amusing story. It was a very funny story, but what immediately struck me was that the, the point of view it represented had no understanding of Chinese culture at all because, I mean, this is China. A pig only has one anus. What in hell would you do presenting fake seafood to Chinese people? Fake seafood. I mean, imitation calamari. It's outrageous. I mean, a pig bung, I I can imagine it can be sold as the chrysanthemum of the pig, (laughs) the flower of the (laughs) porcine... Pork petal. (laughs) Pork petal. (laughs) Perfect. Pork petal. I mean, so that, that part didn't ring true to me. I just don't believe there's a single person in China who would want imitation calamari, whereas I believe <clears throat> there's a, probably a non-trivial market for actual pig bum. Would, would you go as far as, as this um, uh, this professor who this who, who we haven't human flesh searched, and I don't think any of us actually know who he was, but the, the guy who, who, who dismissed the question as essentially racist and, and frivolous? Well, you know what? I, I'm sick of these politically correct cunts. I mean, whatever fucking racist. Chinese people eat weird shit, so people come to expect that. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, racist, yeah, whatever. But it's, <laughs> that does demonstrate a misunderstanding of China because really no Nobody would buy imitation calamari, but there is a market for what did you call well, it? Wait, wait a minute, but petal. The, the petal of the pork. The petal of the pork. But look, look, look let's let's. And in fact, recent, if you just, use in, Baidu, sorry, in, just in just, Liaoning, just just a second. I mean, in Liaoning, just days ago, uh, there was some scandal that involved uh, duck meat being flavored with lamb fat imported from New Zealand and sold as lamb. I mean... Sure. Okay, so if the margins make sense, well, yes. Well, I mean, couldn't, if, wouldn't pig bung it, be cheaper than calamari? I don't know. I mean, exporting a pig bung from the United States all the way to China, is that really... I, I, that doesn't make sense. Yes, okay, I concede that is a possibility. I think it's pretty unlikely. And judging by some of the recipes that I found on Baidu.com for, uh, you know, uh, intestine of pig, including the bottom end... Uh, it's not uh, uncommon for people to eat the bottom end of a pig's digestive system in China. Yeah. And, okay, so have you ever actually tried it? I mean, I, I believe I have. It was actually not too long ago I was eating at one of my favorite Sichuan restaurants, this place called Sanyang Cai, right, by Gongti, near my house. And uh, I, uh, I I saw a bunch of my, my wife's friends, and they ordered something, you know, it was all, all sorts of innards floating around in this Chongqing style kind of, um, you know, very, very red. Color. But anyway, there, there, there it was. It looked very much like a piece of calamari. I'm thinking that's, you know, that looks like it could very well be pork anus. And I plucked it out and chewed on it thoughtfully, looking, tasting for that kind of the, the shit taste that was described, but not you know, quite so directly in, in the podcast. Finding none. I mean, it was nothing but ma and, ho and, and, and la. Uh, it, was, it was good, kind of chewy. Yeah, very much like calamari. Anyway, pig bung. I yeah, I don't know. I've had like lower intestine of various beasts. I mean, I've had something that was actually advertised as cow vagina. Literally, newbie. China. Some weird thing. Well, and I just say too. I mean, the whole 
For those Americans who are going, ooh, pig bong, you know, have another hot dog, okay? Try to think about what's in it. <laughs> yeah, I know, far That's worse than pig, pig bong. bong in there. Before they were exporting it as calamari, it was there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that, that was fun. Uh, the next question comes from uh, Richard Sprague. Hi, guys. This is longtime listener and fan Richard Sprague, and I have some questions about the Great Firewall. Um, first, it seems to me that this isn't just about thought control or some way of regulating the press. The firewall is as much about enacting a trade barrier to protect domestic companies from foreign competition, encourage the rise of local Internet companies, which I guess they've been pretty successful at. But also, um, my second you know, point is that from an engineering perspective, it seems like an amazing technical achievement that would require huge data centers, very clever, large-scale software development. And you'd think we'd hear more about it from either, I don't know, patent filings, former disgruntled employees, something or other. And I'm just wondering if maybe I've missed some of the news about that, or if you think maybe something else is going on. Maybe it's just hard to report things like that if you want to stay in China. I don't know, something like that. And I'm just curious what your thoughts about the Great Firewall. Thanks. Let me run this together with the, the next question, because it's also about the, the Great Firewall. This one comes from Josh Neal. How far is the Great Firewall away from being actually competent? I hate the days where my VPN doesn't work, not just for social networks that my family back home actually use, but mainly just for being able to surf the web without worrying about one word on a website and the fact that it might lock up my internet connection. It would be great to be able to look at a foreign website that has the Chinese word for carrot on it, and perhaps Baidu Music could stop blocking search results for Shuangzi just because you aren't allowed to talk about his recent arrest. A rap artist, I know, not Kaiser's cup of tea. Can I get away with saying that it's just for listening practice? Okay, let me actually take a first stab at, at the question uh, that, that, that was put to us first by Richard, uh, essentially saying that, that the Great Firewall is a form of protectionism that, that actually gives uh, Chinese companies an advantage over foreign competitors. I want to suggest that it may not have been designed as such. Uh, in fact, I don't think that it was. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that wasn't its purpose, but uh, that was a collateral effect of it. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, a lot of these companies have been allowed to now uh, take commanding leads in their sectors where it would be almost insurmountable and almost, you know, impossible for a, a U.S. competitor were it to be allowed in to, dis- to unseat a, a Yoku or to unseat a, uh, a what, what, uh, Rinrin or a, or a uh, Sina Weibo. Uh, but that said, I would also say that I mean let's let's go back to before these websites were actually blocked before Twitter was blocked before Facebook was blocked before YouTube was blocked they, the 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 these sites the US sites while they were available were distant also rans in their categories they were way behind uh the Renren and and behind the Yoku and behind uh you know what, what was the other one I, <laughs> anyway the right Lots of, of, of Chinese sites that were uh, on the ground and, and, and really, you know, creaming them. I think, for example, YouTube was a distant number eight behind Yoku and Tudo and 56. Uh, Facebook, even before it was blocked, was, you know, very, very far down the list of social networks that were used here. Of course, they didn't have servers in China, and so they were a miserably slow experience because even though they weren't blocked by the GFW, they were outside of it. Thoughts? My thoughts are that the trade protectionism is a uh, welcome side benefit of the Great Firewall uh, that nobody in China uh, has a problem with, really, including Chinese internet companies, but that that isn't the main reason why foreign internet companies don't do well, and that's not also the most important factor behind the Great Firewall. I mean, the reason for the Great Firewall is censorship. That's it. That is the reason. Anything else that... uh, other uh, positive benefits to the Chinese government or the Communist Party that the Great Firewall brings may be a bonus, but that's not what it's about. Right, and censorship isn't for censorship's sake. It's for, you know, the preservation of social stability. Right. right? Um, and what about Josh's question here about the, how, the, the technical competence of the Great Firewall? Jeremy, do you think that I it's... mean, you know, I talk about this quite a lot, and, I mean, my opinion is that the, the Chinese government's internet censorship system is the most sophisticated and effective internet censorship system in the world. It's not, 
you know, it's not a watertight thing. It's not a hermetic seal. It's not perfect. But considering how many people are online in China, uh, considering, you know, the chaos that the chaos that goes on every day in different parts of this country, considering the nature of the Chinese Internet, it is a remarkably successful tool set of tools that they've come up with to deal with uh, the huge challenge the Internet poses to their rule. But, I mean, it's competent. It's very well done. So, I mean, uh, my, one of the beefs that I have with the, the way that these two questions were phrased is it's almost sort of taken um, as an assumption and an incorrect one that the Great Firewall's major uh, raison d'etre is to keep Chinese people from visiting sites outside of China. In fact, the kind of censorship that most Chinese experience in their everyday lives has very little to do with it. It's actually just... Uh, uh, it's domestic censorship they encounter. In fact, you know, something like only 3 or 4% of all uh, requests are for sites outside of China. It's, it's actually quite rare that Chinese netizens will surf to sites outside of China in the first place. So, Well, you know, I think part of it, too, is, is not necessarily just that things are centered, but censored, but also that, you know, the technical way in which China receives the information from the outside world it causes all kinds of anomalies when you're trying to use the internet in Beijing. Not in long, not just if you're trying to access sites that the government doesn't want you to access, but even when you're trying to use, say, streaming video or any site in which the server is located outside of China. Trying to watch the Super Bowl on Monday over NFL.com was a profoundly frustrating experience that almost involved me taking my laptop and throwing it out of a sixth-floor window. That's not my laptop's fault. It's the fact that the internet is just so goddamn slow, yep. and it's it's one of those by one of those fortunate byproducts for Chinese companies who you know use the internet. But for those of us who you know every once in a while do want to browse offshore, damn it! I mean, it's the, it's one of the most frustrating things about being here. Right. The internet is not slow in China. I mean, Chinese sites are are incredibly fast. Right? It's it's the 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 gateway to the outside, I mean, where the pipeline actually touches China, that's where the bottleneck is. No, absolutely. Right. I mean, I, but I didn't want to watch Zhao Benshan's top 12 skits. I wanted to watch the damn Super Bowl, and right. that was not working on Monday morning. Um, to be fair, it's also the other way around. If you've ever tried to look at Chinese sites from outside of China, uh, outside of China, it's a pain in the ass, too. All the time. Right. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next question. Now, this one comes from James in Shanghai. Uh, we're going to run this together with a, a question from David Stroop, who's a doctoral student at the University of Oklahoma and the winner of last week's giveaway of, of Tom Miller's book, China's Urban Billion. Hi, guys. Love the show. With the recent foray in Hong Kong over the British Council's This Is Great Britain ad campaign and previous freakouts about restaurants in Shanghai using the term French concession, when do you think China will be able to look back on the legacy of colonialism with a sense of self-confidence, separating the good from the bad like India does, rather than simply screaming 100 years of humiliation while knocking down gorgeous colonial-era buildings? Hey there, Kaiser, Jeremy, and everyone at the Seneca Podcast. My question for you guys today is about Chinese nationalism and the influence that it has on China's posture towards other countries, um, particularly in reference to the nationalist protests against Japan over the Diaoyu Islands and the nationalist sentiment about the Philippines over islands in the South China Sea. Lately, it seems like a lot of people have emphasized uh, the importance of nationalism in the way that China interacts with other countries, especially uh, with the idea that China is trying to save its own face uh, you know, by promoting nationalism. And the question I have is, one, how important is nationalism in explaining China's dealings with other countries? And two, the question of where is this nationalism coming from? Is this organic nationalism, or is this propped up by the party? You know, is this a really genuine outburst of national pride, or is there a lot of smoke and mirrors and misdirection going on here? And as, as a final question, what do we do with that? How do we respond to it? Okay, Jeremiah, are we uh, still sort of stuck in this mode of, of obsessing on the the, the the you know legacy of colonialism here in China? Is is that no. Well, sure. I mean, you know, patriotic education is in the schools. Patriotic education bases are everywhere. If you go to the National Museum of China, patriotic education smacks you in the face. But one of the things about the way that 19th century history is taught in China is if you look at the textbooks, if you look at the exhibits, yes, they're sorely lacking in nuance. But by and large, the story they tell is pretty much what happened. I mean, you know, imperialism came in and, and sure, it brought with it hospitals and electricity and 
orphanages, but at the same time, it was all done at the barrel of a gun. And it doesn't matter if it's the British in Shanghai or the Chinese in you know, Lhasa today. You know, no matter what you're bringing with you for in terms of modernization or development, if you're doing it at gunpoint, people are not going to be as receptive to it. And, you know, this, this notion, too, of like, you know, great, you know, well, we give you opium, we take your children. I mean, you know, that's, that's not really uh, a trade relationship. That's the Bobby Brown-Whitney Houston divorce settlement. I mean, you know, you, so I'm not really quite sure that we can, as much as we want to say, well, it's, it, it's overemphasized and we're getting tired of hearing about 100 years of humiliation. You know what? It happened. The problem I have with the patriotic education is not so much the way the 19th century is taught. It's the fact that when you get to the 20th century part of the textbooks or the 20th century part of the National Museum, you know, all of a sudden major events of that period suddenly disappear. And that's not simply lacking in nuance. That's just changing the history. And so without the context of the 20th century, the 19th, a lot of those events in the 19th century tend to be dominant in the consciousness of bad things that have happened to China for most people. Uh, I think that may be what you're reacting to. I, I got to take issue with the way James says that separating the good from the bad the way India does. Do you really think that India has, has arrived at this sort of you know, comfort level? With its yeah, I'm not even sure where that came from because I, I don't think many Indian na- intellectuals or nationalists have completely gotten over the whole British thing. Like That was fun. We now have tea plantations. I think it's a lot more part of the, you know, the Indian national consciousness than this, 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 uh, this question seems to give it credit for. Um, I don't know James personally, but judging from that accent, I'm <laughs> guessing that he's British. Uh, well, that may be neither here nor there. Jeremy, do you have a take on, on, on this, this other business, um, the other other question about nationalism from David Stroop? Actually, Jeremiah, you probably know uh, the, the, the professor that he works with, right? Yeah, uh, David, I mean, who's, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Oklahoma talking about nationalism. I uh, imagine you've had a few seminars with Peter Hayes Grease, who wrote China's New Nationalism, one of the better books um, in recent years on the subject of how this nationalist discourse is deployed and perpetuated um, in the Chinese media, um, education, information environments. Um, you know, and I think, I mean, it's a really good question. Of, it's a really good question, of course, of to what extent the government is involved in stoking the fires, f- stoking the fires of nationalism in China. I, I tend to be skeptical of those who say, well, it's all, you know, a government, it's all government sponsored. But on the other hand, you know, I do worry that, um, by letting it happen and by getting some of the benefits of a nationalist response to foreign policy situations, that the government may be painting itself a little bit into the corner when it comes to having to make hard decisions or to be make concessions in negotiations. Right. It constrains their choices. I mean, it already clearly does. Uh, I mean, look at what happened in 2005. We may see it, you know, in, in the process of happening again in its relationship with Japan. Um, you know, China, as I've, I've always used the metaphor, it, it stands over the fire pit of nationalism with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other. Um, it, it likes to try to, you know, if, you know, get it raging when it needs it and then, you know, doesn't want it to spill over its banks and, and, and keeps the, the, the banks wet. That's a good metaphor, but actually it reminds me more of like growing up in New Hampshire and having parties out in the woods where people would do things like spray bug spray into campfires. I mean, th- what I'm saying, though, is that, it's you know, dangerous. It could blow up in your face. No, exactly. I mean, hey, that looks really cool, and that's really getting the party going, except that every once in a while, things go boom. Right. I don't know. I mean, my take on this is just fucking grow up, China, uh, some of the time. I mean, I, I do think that there's... Oh, but surely you have sympathy for... for, for... I completely have sympathy for uh, the uh, the fact that James, the former colonial master of my country, you know, is basically guilty of, you know, by, you know, just being the descendant of British people is guilty of, you know, oppressing the whole world, basically. I mean, one, 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 I don't think one can... Um, I'm being flipped, but it's very hard to hear that question from the former colonial master. Um, I think that China does have many legitimate historical issues that are worth discussing and that are not worth forgetting and that should be taught in school about how things went wrong and how hostile foreign powers occupied bits and pieces of land. But it is pretty scary that, I mean, you know, Xi Jinping, one of his first major public appearances um, after uh, the 18th Party Congress, brings up the whole bloody opium wars again. I mean, the opium wars, Xi Jinping, I mean, really, is that necessary right now? And I think that's what, uh, for a lot of 
outsiders and a lot of concerned Chinese intellectuals one finds difficult to cope with is that why are we talking about the opium wars now? Why don't we talk about the problems that well, we we're have talking in about China now, now? Because because the the, the fruit of of the opium war is the modernity that we now. Uh, is is sort of being rammed down the throats of of many people from formerly colonized countries. They you know it, it they they believe that it ought to be one they can contest, and the opium war as the sort of you know opening act of modern China's history is is a, a, a still a very live touchstone. I also think it was important in the context of what he did where he did that. He did that at the Road to Rejuvenation exhibit in the National Museum. And that exhibit very um, – and the whole point of the exhibit is to tell the origin story, the myth, the creation myth of modern China. And it's almost told in religious terms. I mean 1949 is seen as a redemption. And you can't have a redemption without a fall. And the, pro- the, the whole way this is – all the way this is, is put forward is you have the fall, the century of humiliation redeemed by the revolution in 1949 and who are the redeemers. I mean, that particular narrative, I mean, again, as lacking in nuance as it is, is such an important part, not all of it, but an important part of the legitimacy of the party that they're not going to let that story go anytime soon. No, they're not. And I mean, that's what I don't like about it is the religious aspect of it. I mean, it's not based on any kind of rational consideration of one's past. It's not based on any kind of attempt to understand anything from a point of view outside the Communist Party's take on this. That's the only acceptable take. And it makes for a very, very unhealthy um, uh, media environment, a very unhealthy educational system. If that were the the case, in fact, then you'd have a very different uh, take on it from, say, the Kuomintang. And that is not the case. I mean, prior to 1949, uh, the way that then, you know, that century of humiliation had been viewed was very much the same. It's not a communist it, – it's not a co- so much a communist uh, liturgy as it is a, a Chinese nationalist one. Uh, they, I, I don't know, Kaiser. I mean uh, Jeremiah, I, maybe I'm that's true. I, yeah, mean, let's ask Jeremiah. Story I mean, in here. I mean yeah, central, you know. the idea that, that China need to be, needed to be liberated, freed, made independent, saved, what have you, that goes back even pre-Guomandang. Of course it does. But I, I think that the, the whole redemption story of – you know, 1949 and the communist revolution being the only revolution that was able to, you know, defeat the twin forces of imperialism and feudalism. Sure, there's that part of it, but that's not what we're talking about, right? No, we're, but you, in order to have that, about, re- you know, whether there's a legitimate, legitimate living grievance about things that happened 150 years ago. Well, it, it actually all ties together, Kaiser, because without that, without that fall, you don't have the redemption. It does not a story unless you have the humiliation. So, you know, if it's simply like, yeah, we had some bad times and then we hit the 1950s, that doesn't say the same thing as our country was being torn apart from inside and from outside. And that all stopped when? Oh, yeah, when we showed up. When Mao walked onto the world stage with a T-shirt that said, yo, feudal overlords, I will cut a bitch. Yeah, you know what? The, the, let's, let's imagine an alternative history where, uh, where Jiang Jiexi had, had, had triumphed. Uh, we would have seen That's the same called thing. San Tour. <laughs> <laughs> we would have seen the same thing. I mean, we would have seen, seen the same narrative. Well, I don't know, Kaiser. I mean, I, you know, I think James, coming from England, you should just look around at the city of London and contemplate how your country had looted and raped the rest of the earth for like 200 years. We don't know these To bring this tiny island into the state of prosperity, which it currently still exists on, where you have free health care and other things unknown to the Chinese masses and the American masses. But I do think that the Chinese Communist Party overdoes it. And they have made the 100 years of shame and humiliation into a – they've painted themselves into a corner. Sure. We all agree on that. Right, right. Anyway, okay, let's let's move on. We have a, a question from Winslow, who uh, is actually the writer behind a blog that we've recommended on this, Cowries and Rice. It's about Sino-African relations, and here's this question. This is Winslow. I'm a huge fan of the show and everything that you guys do. Um, I had a kind of long question about education in China, specifically as it relates uh, to uh, foreigners. Um, I am a foreigner, uh, my wife is Chinese, and in the off chance that we do go back to China and settle permanently, um, I would like to know about uh, sending our kid to a Chinese school. And, and yeah, I'm curious, how do foreign children fare in Chinese schools? 
Well, I, I don't have any actual experience in, in, in cities outside of Beijing uh, or Shanghai. I mean, I, there are international schools. I know in Beijing there are schools uh, like the one that I send my kids to, which are Chinese track schools where some of the day is taught in English and that, that accept international students. There are only a specific number of schools that will legally accept international students. And Fang uh, Di is one of them. Uh, middle schools like Wushu uh, Wuzhong and Ba Zhong here in, in, in Beijing same thing. Uh, I don't know. Any, any, you guys know anything about education in third-tier cities? Well, I, I think, I mean, outside of Beijing and Shanghai, the rules are much more flexible. I mean, I know, for example, Mark Kitto, uh, a friend of mine and the uh, author of a famous uh, letter I'm leaving China, right. uh, to China on his departure, his kids have been going to school in um, uh, just down the hill from Morganshan, where they live, which is not even a second-tier city. It's a, basically a village. Uh, and they've uh, done okay in 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 the school, um, you know. So I, it's definitely possible to do it, and people do do it, and that includes foreigners and mixed blood children, and you know. But like everything, you know, everything has its price, and sending your Chinese kid, your kids to a Chinese school has various prices. I don't. I mean, I don't really have a lot of experience here, but one thing I have, I mean, read about is that access to the best schools. And if you're in a second tier or third tier city, the number of like truly top schools shrinks considerably or, or acceptable schools. Access to those schools is very much controlled by who you know and kind of being able to exploit connections or relationships to get your kids into the best schools. And the only thing I might suggest to be a, be a little bit tricky is how do you, you know, kind of maneuver your, your, your school-age children into the right school? I think it would take a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of beating the pavement, a lot of meeting with principals, and maybe even uh, a few well-placed gifts to the school endowment. I, I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but... Cynical? Well, <laughs> look, second, look, he asked about second-tier cities. And, and look, what are the second-tier cities? The second-tier cities are, are Tianjin and Chongqing and... and uh, Feng and, Tai. And, and, no, no, <laughs> that, that's not. That's a, a village. But, uh, no. Second-tier cities are, are actually quite few and quite developed. Uh, if, if you're talking about third-tier cities or what, the, the rest of the, the, the major... To Tianjin? <laughs> yes, yes. Tianjin. There like, are international schools in all the... Tianjin, whose motto is, we're the 14th largest city in the world. Don't leave, no wait. We're not making that up. <laughs> Tianjin, who last year had like their celebrating 25 years of Second Story Building Festival. I mean, really? <laughs> this is what we're doing now? Tianjin's fine. You know, you know it. I mean, have you, how much time have you really spent there? It's a, my it's a research focuses on Tianjin, and my wife's from Tianjin. I spend every damn Chinjie in there, and it's like World War III with Baozi. Your, your wife's from there, and that's why you don't like it. I don't understand that. I mean, because that's where your in-laws are. <laughs> Nobody likes to see where their in-laws are from. Okay. I love my... <laughs> hey, your in-laws are from Beijing, Kaiser. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's true, but my in-laws are, are an exception. I'd just like to say on an infinitesimally small chance my in-laws are listening to this, you guys rock. <laughs> Mainly because we're going to spend the next eight days together, and you guys have explosives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the best. <laughs> okay, let's move on. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that we haven't satisfactorily answered that question, but um, really none of us have the, the requisite knowledge here. The, the next one comes from Luke C. in Australia. G'day, mates. My name is Luke, and I'm a student from Canberra. I've listened to Seneca since its inception and have enjoyed figuratively running into Kaiser and Jeremy in other venues over the years, such as Kaiser in the documentary Global Metal and Jeremy and Philip Adams' reports from Beijing, in which Jeremy's driving was the source of some consternation. Now, rarely a week goes by without a Chinese film breaking some kind of record or another in the news. Busiest opening weekend, highest grossing film, biggest budget, blah, blah, blah. Each of these records has been toppled repeatedly over the past couple of years, as the mainland film industry grows and gains on Hollywood. And, as is widely known, government intervention pervades or plagues the mainland Chinese film industry. Film co-productions between the PRC and other nations are no different and are now being explicitly encouraged by the CCP as a means of expanding China's cultural clout and soft power. So my question is this. Is there anything insidious about international co-productions that present harmonised versions of China to the outside world? Should countries like the US, Japan and Australia financially support co-productions such as Gong Fu Meng, Cao Duoji, and Sun Long Duobao in presenting contentious issues strictly according to the party line unconditionally. Are such countries condoning the projection of propaganda into their own theatres? Or is such international artistic cooperation more positive than problematic? 
Jeremy, I remember um, on our first go-round on this, you had lots of stuff to say on the film industry. And yeah, I'm not feeling that inspired to rant about it this time for some reason differently from... Well, maybe I am. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the film industry, come on. You know, what is it? It's all a bunch of marketing bollocks anyway. I mean, name, like, a good film from the last decade. How many can you name? Like, really, truly good films that one would compare with the great films of the... The 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, or 90s. I mean, we live in the era of Transformers 3. This is what we make for films. It's all crap. It's Especially in China, it's really, really crap. I mean, hey, Chinese dude. movies are the worst movies in the whole world. There are no worse movies than Chinese movies. Well, but, I mean, the, even the, American movies. There I used mean, to be good Chinese movies. I mean, you know, Yang Wan Tan Lan, that's a fine movie. A lot of the genre. What about, what about when Let the Bullets Fly? That was a good movie. Uh, okay, thing. name some more. Okay. Well, like crowd, from, that's and, be, you can, and you can have the whole last 50 years. Okay. Um, farewell, my concubine. Okay. That's good. Um, Pre-21st well, century. They're doing, they're doing Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2, which I don't know who, they, who asked for that, but that sounds about as much fun as Unprotected Sex with the Beehive. I mean, we really need to go back to this? Uh, I mean, yeah. At least they're not yeah. doing House of Flying Daggers 2. It's probably worse. House of Crouching Tiger. The Ti- Promise? But, I mean, oh, I don't think we really have to worry about propaganda in Chinese movies because the kind of movies that are affected by Chinese money are crap anyway. I mean, it's like Red Dawn. Okay, so it was the Chinese, then it became the North Koreans. You know what? In fact, if you looked at the kind of Twitter commentary when Red Dawn was released, the kind of redneck bozos in the United States were tweeting things like, I'm real uncomfortable looking at these Asians sitting next to me after seeing Red Dawn. And they were probably looking at Chinese people. You know what I mean? I, I don't think Chinese involvement in, 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 in funding co-productions is going to actually make China's image any better abroad. And I don't think it's really going to be brainwashing anybody in any, any other countries. What it is is going to be continuing Hollywood with a bit of Chinese money, pumping out the same crap that we have become used to since about 1990. Okay. <laughs> I have much to add to that. Except that, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult for Chinese filmmakers nowadays. It seems like they have a choice between going for, you know, the art house cinemas, you know, where their, their movies can be seen by, you know, 18 guys in black turtlenecks named Dieter, or they, they go for the mass market, right, which is just this lowest common denominator pablum that, that goes out into, you know, that actually does some box office but is just, you know, just just awful rom-com. It's terrible. I mean, right. Chinese film is like the worst possible aspect of Chinese culture. Everything wrong with China and everything boring you can find in the Chinese film industry, I think. I don't know. But I think it could be kind of fun. I mean, you want mass market. You do something that involves martial arts. I mean, that's the cliche. You want to go for the... Art house festival circuit, you have some skinny girl take her shirt off and complain about the massacre at Tiananmen. I don't know. It's, it's, so, it's so wonderfully formulaic. Hey, I know what movie you're talking about exactly. <laughs> All of them. Right, right. Summer Palace, that's what you're talking about, right? Okay, um, let's, let's leave that one up and, and uh, move on to a question from Robert Savoy. Yo, what's up, guys? After jumping on the Seneca bandwagon after the This American Life episode... I've now cut up on all the backlogs of Seneca podcasts, so this whole only one podcast a week thing is kind of new to me, and I'm not really digging it. You guys always recommend Chinese blogs, but are there any other Chinese-related podcasts that you guys listen to? Okay, uh, we have actually recommended a few podcasts on here, and we can we can reiterate. I think there's one that all three of us are, are extraordinarily enthusiastic about, and that was, of course, the Chinese History Podcast by... Laszlo Montgomery. Laszlo Montgomery. Love, yeah. love, love the Chinese History Podcast. I mean, I, I actually don't download a whole lot of podcasts, but that's one that whenever it comes out that's on my iPod the next day. I think he – I mean, as someone who tries to also explain you know, Chinese history to you know, people who, are, who, who maybe aren't as familiar with your Song Tang Han, um, I think he does just a masterful job of taking really complicated ideas – and presenting them in a kind of down-home, folksy way. I just think it's a really great style. But also and really nuanced and accurate. No, yeah. No, it doesn't, he does not dumb it down at all. That's what I'm saying. It's, right. it's really hard to do that, and he does such a great job at it, and I, I cannot recommend that podcast more do, highly. Do you actually have your students listen to it? That would be a really terrific thing, I think. I mean, if, if, you, if you assigned it once in a while for them to listen to. Yeah. 
That would be great because what I really need is competition from someone who's really good at his job. <laughs> hey, come on, man. I mean, he's, he's yeah, great. well, anyway, I think, yeah, that gets Spoken by the guy whose main competition is banned in China. <laughs> <laughs> They're not banned here. I mean, it was a self-inflicted wound. Okay. Uh, what about you, Jeremy? Any other recommendations for, for China-related podcasts? I think that's uh, my regular one. Uh, they they used to be the China Africa Project. No, they still uh, they still do something. They, they, they have a podcast, but it, it, it's not so regular anymore. Right. They um, did a really good one recently with Kathleen McLaughlin, though, uh, who is going to come on and talk about a similar topic when she puts out a story. It was about uh, Chinese fake drugs uh, in in Africa and how it's undermining China's reputation there. Um, the malaria drugs, in particular, which China was really you know a pioneer in developing. One more, too. It's a bit irregular these days because I think he's quite busy with his work. But Josh Gartner, who used to do the Cup of Cha blog, uh, he does a, a podcast every once in a while. And it's always worth listening to when it comes out. Yeah, it's excellent. Also, uh, I would say Eric Fish, who was on our show not too long ago, he oh, yes, does a indeed. podcast for the Economic Observer, which is an excellent, excellent uh, you know, journalistic outlet as well. Uh, he, he did one that got quite a bit of listens where he, he – uh, to talk to Richard St. Cyr at, at the Beijing United Family Hospital about uh, air pollution in China. And also the AmCham, the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, has a fairly good podcast hosted now. Uh, Josh started it. Yeah, I think, Josh started it. Hosted now by Casey Swanson, which uh, features a you know pretty big variety of topics. I've been on there myself. Yeah, Casey's a great yeah. ex-journalist. I mean, she's yeah. a really, really good writer, married to... Uh, to, uh, to David. David Spindler, who's David been Spindler. a guest on the show. So yes. it's all uh, a... One big happy family. Yes. All righty. Um, so other I'll... people use other words, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now to circle back and... Uh, <laughs> uh, we're, 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 let's, let's, let's... We've got uh, a question from Cliff. All right, Seneca, let's see if you can clear up some confusing information on language study. I tell my nieces and any college-type person that whatever you do, study Chinese. Yet I read that somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million plus Chinese are studying English. Yet also, China Daily mentions that they're having trouble finding enough teachers of Chinese. So, what is it from your viewpoint? So what do you think, Jeremiah? Do you think that, um, I mean, you're, you're teaching uh, at a, a Chinese study program. Is it, is it something that everyone should be doing learning Chinese now because they're going to, you know, all, there are new overlords who will force us to toil in their underground honey caves. Well, that's an image I'm going to have some trouble getting rid of. But, you know, I think you should study Chinese if you're interested in China. I think if you're, you know, I'm, I want to be on the wave of the future and I'm going to study Chinese. Well, I mean, that's a reason to do it. But, you know, honestly, it's not a very easy language to study if you just want to do it because you think you should. If you really are into China and things Chinese, by all means, study Mandarin. Um, I, there are a lot of opportunities to do so. There's a lot of great programs in China right now. But one of the things I think has really changed for learning Mandarin, at least in the, in the U.S., has been the increased professionalization of Chinese language instruction in the U.S. I think you know, 15 years ago, uh, it was stuck really where English teaching is in China, China today. I mean, hey, you speak Chinese of some kind, don't you? Would you like to teach a university course? <laughs> and now you actually have some really qualified people who are getting, you know, masters and PhDs and CSL or Chinese as a second language teaching in the U.S. And as somebody who's been working in study abroad for, you know, going six years now, um, the level uh, by which the level at which students are coming into study abroad programs is so much higher than it was when I was a study abroad student, um, and I, even in the last say four or five years, I've noticed an, an increase in how prepared the students are for learning Chinese and, and being in China. So I'm going to say something possibly controversial here. If you're interested in in uh, doing business in China, uh, one of the last things you should be spending your time on possibly is, is learning Chinese. Oh, I agree 100% with okay. you. Okay. I mean, because, you know, spend that time and work on your business. Don't yeah. – I mean, the, the the payoff from actually being able to mutter a few polite utterances in Chinese, uh, which you'll only attain after after all, many, many hundreds of hours of toil, is, is it's not really – Worth it, it, is it's it? It's not worth it. And for, I mean, we, you, Kaiser, I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, 
the people we know, the foreigners who've done the best, made the most money in China are often, I mean, they tend to be people who don't speak Chinese. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's I, easy to hire a translator, right? I, I mean, learn Chinese because you will get access to a whole different universe. I mean, it's like being in Alice in Wonderland. Everything is upside down. You learn Chinese because you want to expose yourself to a completely different way of thinking about uh, life and language right. and writing. And these and are the reasons. I mean, these are the reasons. Right. And if you, you you are interested in this culture, it's a, it's the most wonderful thing. But for business, I mean, go and learn computer programming languages are the only languages you should learn if money is the only thing you're is what you want to ensure, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can you can be culturally sensitive without being fluent in the language. You can. But see, this is where this is where I think there's some disconnect here. Are you guys talking about you don't need to go out and be able to recite Tang Dynasty poetry? But are you arguing that you don't need any functionality in the language to succeed here? Very little. Yes, I I, I would say that. I mean, already at this point, there are so many people here who speak. You know, quite good English. There's enough road signage in English. There are enough, you know, uh, things that you can carry. Out. There's translation programs. You, there, you don't really need much to get around anymore. It can it can help you to sure. speak Chinese. It, 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 it can also like, you know, help you to not speak Chinese in China. And I mean, frankly speaking, I mean, I I think most Chinese people would prefer foreigners didn't really learn Chinese. I mean, it's <laughs> not like Americans where you think you're a fucking idiot if you can't speak English. For Chinese people. They don't really, I mean, despite all the government's efforts with the Confucius Institute, I mean, a lot of Chinese people would really just rather deal with foreigners in English. You know, I, I, do, you know, I do agree a little bit about that. I mean, there's not, this, there is this notion you don't that you even can, get brownie points, you know. Actually, if, you could speak a little, if you could speak a little Chinese, you're like a Zhongguo Tong. Yeah. But if you can like start, if you start reciting Confucius, people get a little suspicious. I get that point. But... I, I, I completely disagree with you guys. I think if you have an ambition to come to China, whether it's to make a million dollars or just to be here, you do need to learn Chinese because if you don't happen to luck into that wonderful corporate job upon arrival that grants you, you know, a secretary and a translator, those first five years are pretty much – or first five years. First 15 years are pretty much going to suck. Okay, I agree. But you're saying somebody's coming to live to China. In other words, they already want to come here. That's their first aim in life. Their first aim in life is not to make money. Their first aim in life is to come to China. Having Chinese skills makes it's everything better. But right. it's I mean, not even, even something if, that you learn or insist your children learn so that they will not starve. In that's right. I agree. Language. As I said before, it's, it's a language you learn if you love China. Right. It's it, not a language you learn if you're in the U.S. and thinking, in the future, I want to be part of something global or business, so I'm going to learn Chinese. If you're in the U.S. and you want to learn a language and you don't care what language it is, do us all a favor and learn Spanish. <laughs> oh, Latin. Okay. On that note, sorry, let's let's sorry. go. We got a, a really fun <laughs> final question here. Okay, Jenny. How much Latin did you speak in South Africa growing up? I mean, I really want to know this. Uh, no, sorry. You know that. Uh, yeah. Let's change the subject. Right. We're, we're gonna actually <laughs> cut you off now, Jeremy. No cut me beer, off. No more beer for you here. Cut me off. Uh, okay. So we've got um, time for just one more question, and this one comes from Chris Bowie. It's a really fun question. The documentary film "Searching for Sugar Man." about an artist called Rodriguez, who was from America originally, but was world famous in South Africa and nowhere else. It's really interesting because it shows how something can be so famous in one country, even though it's never been heard of anywhere else in the world. Do you think there are any cultural, Western cultural nuggets from... Uh, anywhere in, else in the world, which is very famous in China, that might be a huge surprise to anybody coming from the West. Jeremy, you're surely familiar with Rodriguez. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a big fan of Rodriguez as a teenager. That was the music that, you know, people of uh, white South Africans kind of learned to smoke dope to. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was that kind. He was uh, bigger than Bob Dylan and the Jeremy Doors. Asked, well, who the fuck is Rodriguez? <laughs> so yeah, you I, I have absolutely no idea who this person is. And I, I, I don't... I don't I you don't know the film. So it, it's this American guy. He was a sort of Dylanish folk singer, became a huge hit in South Africa, uh, but never uh, knew it because his producer basically was taking all the, the money. And he was just like a basically a building construction worker 
in uh, Detroit. Uh, and anyway, some... Wait, wait, so he wasn't actually living in South Africa. He was still living in... Yeah, he did Holy not know... Shit, this is that... a real person you're talking about. Yeah, this he's, isn't a he's movie. alive. No, it's a, it's a it's documentary a, movie. About him, right, about yeah. this guy Rodriguez. Yeah, so w- when I was a kid, kind of, you had Pink Floyd uh, albums. You, If you were a bit, like, uh, you know, intense, you might know about The Doors uh, and Bob Dylan. But Rodriguez was something you had if you were kind of into alternative culture. <laughs> Nobody in America had ever heard of him. Everybody who was an English-speaking liberal white in South Africa had his records. Anyway, I would recommend that film, Searching for Sugar Man, very much, about Rodriguez. Big hit in South Africa, nobody knows him in America. To Chris's question, though, so what are some of the cultural gems here that that have gotten? I've got a couple. I mean, you know, one, of course, was the old, was John Denver when we first got here. But the other one is the just sheer amount of Kenny G. Oh, God. And and Jeremy, you must get this a lot, right? Because you look like Kenny G. Yeah, <laughs> you, get, you get mistaken for Kenny G. I mean, I, I know yeah, that has, you... That has happened to me once. Just once. Uh, yeah, it's was, hard to believe that it's just... You're shying away from the Kenny microphone. That you really I, well, I, it's, it's, it's very embarrassing. <laughs> it's not pleasant to think of that. I'm the ubiquity of Kenny G. I remember I, when I first got here walking around the botanical gardens in like 90 degree heat and the only CD they had was the Kenny G Christmas album. But everyone repeat. knows Kenny G in America. Okay, too. The, Richard Clayderman, the, the French yeah, pianist, right. who Richard was also Clayderman. a big deal in South Africa, funnily enough. Um, and he's a kind of a cheesy, he plays sort of, you know, cheesy-fied. Right, I mean, he's like Yanni meets classics. I don't know what, how you describe you've it. You've heard his, his, if you've ever, you know, if you've made more than 10 phone calls in China and have listened to the, the ringback tone, you have heard him along with, you know, most of the Kenny G. Catalog. And he was a big hit in South Africa in the 80s, too. Um, the other funny thing in China that's similar to, to South Africa is a television show called The Man from Atlantis, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, which was po- it was one of the early American TV shows that was allowed on South African TV. Like and the same in China and it's about this guy who kind of comes from Atlantis and he has webbed uh, fingers and feet and he Patrick Oh God! He died recently. The actor died. Patrick Swayze. No, no, it wasn't. No, no, no. Patrick Swayze. I can't remember. Anyway, he swam with that kind of weird undulation. Yes, it was like that was actually cool. I I would. I remember. You know, when I was in junior high or high school, I was always trying to imitate that swimming style, and it doesn't actually work. (laughs) And then there's uh, uh, Astro Boy, the Japanese cartoon, was you know the first popular foreign cartoon here. Right. I don't know if people are familiar with that. But not not so much anymore, but Tom and Jerry when we all first got here. Well, no, Tom and Jerry's being in America, too. Not the been... same way. You don't, you don't go to the bar to watch Tom and Jerry. This and is... that, that used to be the case. Okay. What, okay, I've I, I got to come up with one more really funny-ass cultural gem here. Oh, the, what was the other show? The other television show besides Man from Atlantis? It was Hunter. Hunter. Hunter was Hunter, that's right. Hunter. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, also talk... a hit in South Africa. Yeah. Very strange. So, but yeah. whoever had the, the the license, the international license, whoever was, was selling TV uh, uh, programs to pariah regimes, <laughs> <laughs> had the license for those two shows. Let's find out whether it's big in North Korea, and then we'll have a tri- trifecta. Um, great guys, uh, that was fun. And um, I'll get, once again, apologies for making you guys wait one more week. Do you have something to say, Jeremiah? You're looking at me. With... Oh, you know what? Right, and it's it's. Uh, it's Spring Festival, so happy Spring Festival, everybody. Happy Twins Year. Our best wishes for the Year of the Snake to all our listeners. Absolutely. As somebody who grew up in New Hampshire, any festival that brings alcohol and fireworks together, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so everyone come back with all your digits. And um, you know, Jeremy, I know you're a total fucking pyromaniac, so please be careful out there. I love fireworks. Uh, you know, that's one of the things. Fapiao and fireworks, I think, are the two things I love most about China. Fapiao, fireworks, and food. Okay, the three Fs. The three Fs. <laughs> Jeremy's into the F words. <laughs> okay, so we will see you folks next week. Uh, or actually, we'll, we're gonna take, are we going to take a week off? Maybe not. Maybe not. We'll we're see. hardworking how, people. How the, how the mood strikes us. If, yeah. if, if I'm itching to get back to doing something productive, we'll... Uh, I want to remind everyone, uh, we've started a companion blog to the to, to the podcast. It's at Seneca.Quora.com. It's on Quora. And, uh, we it's have? Just, uh, <laughs> well, I, I did. I mean, it was just sort of a, a, an afterthought. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a place I'll go and write, write some stuff. Uh, so check it out. And Quora, sorry, I know we're dragging on the end of the show a little bit. But I, I would like to mention something we discussed on Twitter today. What I think is wonderful about Quora.com is that... It is a social networking site where it appears that there's not a single member of it who thinks that homeopathy 
is a real thing. <laughs> There's a question on Quora about homeopathy. Everybody says it's it's junk science. Right, well, they're all piling on each other to make the, the best joke about how it doesn't work. Yeah. Geek it. social networks have their advantages. Oh, uh, they're terrific. Well, that one, uh, Stack Overflow, too. Uh, but, yeah, Quora, I actually just got my T-shirt and my book in the mail. I, I answered a question, what do the Chinese, do, do Chinese today regard Mao as a, a hero or a villain or something like that? And I had answered the question, got my piece inserted into the hardbound book that they published and they sent me a, a t-shirt in the book. Oh, wow. I didn't know it. Yeah. Wonderful. Anyway, thanks, Cora. We will uh, see you guys next week. Take care. Bye.